we are repentant. We are grateful. We are redeemed. We are prayerful. We are First Baptist Church. for us to be together um, for worship, to pause, to breathe, to remember that God is and that He is present in our life uh, and that He calls us to know Him and listen to Him and follow Him in His ways in the midst of a very hurting and broken world. Our, our time of gathering is an opportunity to... Uh, respond to God, extol Him for who He is, but also be reminded of those truths. And I hope you see that. Uh, my name is Danny Panter. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, have the privilege of uh, preaching and leading here in Logos. If you're new with us, we are so glad that you are with us in worship today. Uh, we would love to know that you're with us, so you can do that by going to fbcsa.org connect right on your device, and you can just say, I was here, fill out a few little uh, blanks there, and, and our hope is to be able to make a connection with you later on. Also, let me remind you, as a part of our worship, we are called to be givers as an act of worship and trusting to God all that he has already given to us, but also to be a part of what God is doing uh, through this church family. You can do that by going to fpcsa.org give, or you can... Put a little envelope uh, right there as you exit through these doors. You can see the little bins. Uh, you can put that there as well. So we have been in this journey uh, with Gideon. And you can remember that uh, God called this fearful, uh, scared uh, man to become a mighty warrior and lead the people of Israel out from under the oppression of the Midianites and their allies. He promised Gideon that I would be with you. I will fight this battle for you. This is about me accomplishing deliverance through you. You remember last week, um, God whittled that army down from uh, 32,000 to 300 and gave an incredible victory using some incredible psychological warfare against the Midianites and their allies. In fact, so much so that the majority of the army, of that Midianite army, and their confusion and chaos ended up um, wiping out most of that army. Um, and we know that following that victory, where we find ourselves today, is uh, that Gideon called upon the other uh, uh, Israelite tribes to go and take care of those who have fleed, the remaining soldiers of the Midianites who have fleed, uh, fled from that uh, valley where all that chaos and confusion and death um, happened. And, and then Gideon and the 300, whom God had um, kept together, none of those 300 men uh, had died, they went on their own campaign uh, to follow after some commanders, what we find in the text referred to as the kings of the Midianites. Um, we also know that 
Gideon also called the tribe of Ephraim and gave the tribe of Ephraim a particular task to go after two additional military commanders. And he called that tribe last in his strategy of finishing off what God had started in him in leading the people of Israel to a place of deliverance. And that's where we find ourselves today. And so rather than all of us reading this text together, I'm going to read this narrative to you, and I want you to listen. I want you really to pay attention to the kind of person Gideon is in chapter 8. Okay, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, and then I'm going to pick up, um, I'm going to skip just a few verses, and then pick up just a little after that to finish the narrative where we are today. So let me begin in chapter 8, verse 1, and I want you to listen well. Then the people of Ephraim asked Gideon, why have you treated us this way? Why didn't you sin for us when you first went out to fight the Midianites? And they argued heatedly with Gideon. But Gideon replied, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't even the leftover grapes of Ephraim's harvest better than the entire crop of my little clan of Abizar? God gave you victory over Oreb and Zeb, the commanders of the Midianite army. What have I accomplished compared to that? When the men of Ephraim heard Gideon's answer, their anger subsided. Gideon then crossed the Jordan River with his 300 men, and though exhausted, they continued to chase the enemy. When they reached Succoth, Gideon asked the leaders of the town, please give my warriors some food. They are very tired. I am chasing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth replied, catch Zeba and Zalmunna first, and then we will feed your army. So Gideon said, after the Lord gives me victory over Zeba and Zalmunna, I will return and tear your flesh with the thorns and briars from the wilderness. From there, Gideon went up to Peniel and asked for food there, but he got the same answer. So he said to the people of Peniel, after I return in victory, I will tear down this tower. Verse 13. After all this, Gideon returned from the battle by the way of Harris Pass. And there he captured a young man from Succoth and demanded that he write down the names of all the 77 officials and elders in the town. Gideon then returned to Succoth and said to the leaders, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna. When we were here before, you taunted me, saying, Catch Zeba and Zalmunna first, and then we will feed your exhausted army. Then Gideon took the elders of the town and taught them a lesson, punishing them with thorns and briars, from the wilderness. He also tore down the tower of Peniel and killed all the men in the town. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we know there's always much to learn from your word. So even now, as we look at these hard to read verses, that you would help us to see, give us understanding so that we can see our own broken nature and look to you for help and guidance. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. 
Um, this morning, I really want to try to capture as best we can this descent of Gideon. Now, Gideon hasn't walked with the Lord for very long. In fact, as I've said over the course of this journey with Gideon, that in, in a very real way, God was reintroducing himself to Gideon and his people because God was just one of their many gods. In fact, he was probably way down the list. Baal was kind of front and center as a part of their worship. So it wasn't as if Gideon knew all that he needed to know. This journey with God was a young one. Uh, And yet, uh, we still find in verse 8, after the success that God had given Gideon, a very quick default back to his previous way of life. We capture this, this descent of Gideon into an old nature and character, uh, in some ways still very different than the Gideon we were first introduced to. Um, but nonetheless, we see this person who was elevated into a leadership role begin to exhibit qualities of a leader we should never follow. And so this morning, I just want to walk through and identify some of those qualities of leadership that we see in Gideon that we should never take on for ourselves. I really want this to be kind of a warning for us, uh, that we too can go back to our default setting and find ourselves in similar places and reactions and decisions just like Gideon. So let's begin uh, with looking at just this first quality that we notice that is a warning to us. The first time we are introduced with Gideon in chapter 6, even through chapter 7, we see this ongoing conversation between Gideon and the Lord. Uh, And although we can kind of press against Gideon, oh, where's your lack of faith? But it's still a really cool picture of Gideon who's trying to figure out what this God wants of him and who this God is. And he's asking legitimate questions, right? Are you really going to be with me? Uh, Can I really trust you, God, the God of my ancestors? Those are all great questions. And he had this dialogue with the Lord, this fruitful conversation where along the way, God was nudging Gideon into great faith and steps of action. But when we get to chapter 8, it doesn't seem like there's any more conversation between Gideon and the Lord. Uh, God is almost completely absent other than some glib references that Gideon makes to the Lord that sounds more like self-praise and self-endorsement than it does actual acknowledging of who God is. There, it seems like Gideon is no longer waiting on the Lord or inviting God to help him and questioning the Lord and how can I do this? There's, there's no longer these nudges from the Lord in the midst of this dialogue between Gideon There is no conversation. It seems like at some point, not too long after the success that God had given Gideon and the 300 men, that in his own mind, Gideon began to think that I can do this on my own. That I can do this on my own. I I don't, God has given me license. Uh, I have a divine right. I I don't know what was going on in Gideon's heart and mind, but for all practical purposes, it looks like Gideon just walked away from the conversation with the Lord. 
No longer waiting on the Lord. No longer seeking the Lord as, as to what he should do next or how he should do it. Christian, can I remind you that there is never a time when we are to take our eyes off of Jesus. We are always in desperate need to seek the Lord where we are in life. We never come to a place of success where we no longer need to hear God's voice and respond to God and what he has to say in our life. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, that famous passage, let me just read this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with the endurance, the race that God has set before us. Verse 2, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. At no point in this journey, this calling as Christian warriors, do we lay aside this dynamic relationship with God. Uh, at no point do we take our eyes off of Jesus. He's the one that's going to give us wisdom and nudge us along and give us the fruit that he's promised to give us. At no point do we take our eyes off Jesus in the way that it seems like Gideon took his eyes off the Lord. Uh, the second quality that we see um, that I want to warn us against is it appears as if and these go together, that Gideon began to be led not by the instruction of the Lord and the encouragement of the Lord, but began to be led by his own pride, right? In the first few verses of chapter 8, we see this encounter with the people of Ephraim. In verse 1, it says, "Then the people of Ephraim asked Gideon, why have you treated us this way? Why didn't you sin for us when we first went out to fight the Midianites? And they argued heatedly with Gideon. But Gideon replied, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't even the leftover grapes of Ephraim's harvest better than the entire crop of my little clan of Abizer? I mean, Gideon is so savvy here. Uh, he is so politically savvy here. He flatters the Ephraimites in, in the face of their heated arguments. Why didn't you call us sooner? Didn't you need us? Didn't you want us? And Gideon's like, oh, but your, your people are so great. You're so much greater than my little people. And not to mention, you're the ones that have been tasked with and succeeded in capturing the commanders of the Midianites. What you've done is far greater than what we've done. I mean, this is a far cry from this, this meek, scared young man that we see in this initial encounter when God says, oh, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, who are you talking about? Now we find ourselves with this seemingly astute and politically savvy person. And maybe it's true that, gosh, he is coming into every bit of God's identity for him. You are now the mighty warrior. Maybe Gideon's living that out, but we see this incredible response where he avoids conflict with Ephraim. And then we know that he and the 300 then venture out to capture and kill these two remaining Midianite kings or warlords. 
At some point along the way, it seems that caution and uncertainty is replaced with license or pride. I can do this. I can do this. And it's not as if, it's not as if his military strategy was unwarranted. I really believe that Gideon was making really good military decisions to capture these soldiers on the run, to capture these commanders. But it seems like he's doing it in a kind of godless, licensed kind of way where he's doing it out of his own, like I've come into my own, I have arrived to my own, and I no longer need to have this conversation with the Lord. It, it, for all senses, purposes, and practically speaking, it, it seems as if Gideon is beginning to lead by his own ego. I can handle this situation. I know what I need to do next. Proverbs 16, 18, we know this passage very well. What does it say Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. It was only a matter of time in Gideon's leadership that that would be true. Fear and pride are two sides of the same coin. Remember, we see Gideon right at the beginning, uh, this fearful man that being introduced to this God of his ancestors who promised to be with him and use him uh, Gideon needed his, he needed to overcome his anxiety and fear. And by God's grace, God kind of nudged him along into faith and action as he should. He shouldn't have stayed in his anxiety and fear. But uh, anxiety and fear is just as godless or faithless as is his pride now. I've got this certainty, confidence. Anxiety and pride are two sides of the same coin. Christian, your life, your friends, your family, your workplace, and your colleagues can't afford for you to be consumed by either pride or fear. They need to know and see God's presence at work in your life. Humble, humble. And then it's no surprise that if, if God is no longer a part of the waiting and the seeking, and it's no surprise that Gideon is moving into a place of pride and arrogance and hubris, then it's also no surprise that um, patience and grace would no longer be a part of his life and leadership. In Judges 8, 4 through 9, we have this scene um, where Gideon encounters these two towns. Verse 4, Gideon then crossed the Jordan River with his 300 men, and though exhausted, they continued to chase the enemy. When they reached Succoth, Gideon asked the leaders of the town, please give my warriors some food. They are very tired. I'm chasing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth replied, catch Zeba and Zalmunna first, and then we will feed your army. So Gideon said, after the Lord gives me victory over Zeba and Zalmunna, I will return and tear your flesh with thorns and briars from the wilderness. 
From there, Gideon went up to Peniel and asked for food, but he got the same answer. So he said to the people of Peniel, after I return in victory, I will tear down this tower. Pride and or anxiety often keeps us from seeing past our noses. We become consumed with the self, what we think, what we want. And again, his strategy was not in error. His ask was reasonable. By all means, both of these towns should have said, yes, we're going to meet the needs of your soldiers. We're going to care for them so that they can continue to do what they're supposed to be doing. But at the same time, is it not surprising that they would have the same anxieties and fears as Gideon did just days before? Maybe moments before or weeks before? Is it surprising that they would probably weigh 300 men against the remaining 15,000 and somehow believing, no, you still have the odds against you? We're in better hands, potentially. Let's just wait to see the outcome before we give our allegiance to Gideon or to the Midianites. I mean, do we blame them? They had the same fears as Gideon did. And yet, although Gideon had received grace and patience from the Lord and mercy from the Lord and nudging from the Lord, that's not the response that Gideon gives these towns, is it? No, he, he is immediately offended by that response. I can't believe that you were to respond to me in that way. He begins to take it incredibly personal. And rather than retelling them, I mean, he had every opportunity as they questioned him, you know, Gideon, we're not really so certain. Do we still have a lot of fear we're holding on to you? Why don't you go bring them back and then we'll help you out. We're just not so sure about this this, this thing that you're doing. I mean, he could have taken the opportunity and said, you know, can I just tell you what God has done through this and the promises God has made? Can I remind you that God called me and he promised to be with me? And let me tell you, he was with us. We, we, we destroyed a hundred, over 100,000 army against 300 men. Only God could do something like that. No, he could have shared that story, but he didn't. In his personal offense, I can't believe they would treat me like that. What disrespect. He immediately turns around and condemns them and threatens them rather than extending grace to them. Grace and patience were completely absent in his leadership and were replaced with, I will do what I want to do because I'm personally offended by what you've said and what you have done. Christian, we ought to have the thickest skin. We ought to have the thickest skin in the midst of living in a very broken world that does not know God or love God or seek God. We ought to have the thickest skin. Blake Coffey quoted Brant Hansen, when he said, we of all people should be unoffendable. Remember when he said that? Of all people, we as Christians should be unoffendable. And yet, it feels like that's the, the ocean we're swimming in. The world is offended by everything. 
and the church is not that far behind. We're offended by everything. We've got all our rights, and we're claiming our rights. We should have the thickest skin. Why? Because of God's grace. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love each other because he loved us first. We extend grace to other people. Even when they say ugly and wrong things, we extend grace to other people because God has extended grace to us. Our lives can't be absent of the kind of grace and patience and mercy that God in incredible, extraordinary ways has given to us through Jesus. We're called to live that out. Live by grace. John would go on to say that God's love is perfected in us and how we love other people. So it makes perfect sense that if you are no longer including God in the conversation and, and you're beginning to live by your own ego, I've got this, I have the divine right and license to do as I please, it makes perfect sense that we'd also abandon grace and mercy towards other people. And lastly, it would then make sense that we would become led or will be led by our most base impulses. Judges 8, 16, and 17, what was the outcome of Gideon's threats and condemnation? Then Gideon took the elders of the town and taught them a lesson, punishing them with thorns and briars from the wilderness. He also tore down the tower of Peniel and killed all the men in the town. I mean, so he even went beyond. He just didn't tear down the tower. Remember, that's what he threatened. I'm going to tear down your tower. He was so angry and so offended that he was led by his anger in that moment and essentially just wiped out the town, killed every man in it. His own people. His own people. He did not have any command from the Lord to wipe out his own people. That was on him that was his anger, his being offended. He took him out. Gideon's gracelessness turns to brutal, ugly violence. This isn't wisdom, it's not direction from the Lord, it's settling a score. And again, I mean, we live in a culture that celebrates being led by your gut right? Led by how you feel in the moment. Well, that's the kind of culture we live in. I mean, all of us know uh, the kind of people that will say, uh, you know, I speak my mind. I don't withhold the truth. Uh, I'm just going to tell it like it is. But can I remind you that if our telling it like it is, our speaking our mind, our telling the truth leaves a wake of destruction behind us, it's not from the Lord. No matter how true you think it is. 
because it doesn't embody the kind of redeeming grace that we receive from Jesus. We didn't, we weren't redeemed through Jesus by him standing up in our face and condemning us. What did Jesus say? I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to redeem the world. We were redeemed by Jesus saying as I died for your sin and I'm extending grace and mercy through you. And that's the expectation that he has for us as his church and his people. I want you to live like I lived with you. Not just speaking your mind and speaking truth. We are called to speak truth. But I don't think we speak or ought to speak the truth in the way that we're seeing it right now. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. Jesus is um, talking to a church that is experiencing a lot of tension. Uh, and they were just lobbying, lobbying just barbs and spears towards one another. Words. And this is what he said to them. Verse 13, you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. Freedom. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the warning in verse 15. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Gideon was led by his own base impulses. I am angry and I'm going to take out those who offended me. I'm going to punish them. I'm going to put them in their place. I'm going to settle their score. And Paul says, be careful. Be careful if you're going to be governed by your gut, your most base impulses, rather than the freedom that you have in Christ to love. We, we have been given freedom to love without restraint. But he says, if you're governed by your most base impulses, then be careful because you will destroy each other. And the way he says it, you're going to eat each other alive. Just eat each other up. Christian, you cannot be governed by your most base impulses. Our emotions and feelings are good. God designed them to be, uh, to warn us, right? To alert us to some things. Sometimes they're completely wrong altogether, but they were designed to steer us in the right direction. But because of our brokenness, if they aren't, uh, if they aren't, uh, Governed by God's wisdom and God's truth and listening to God's voice, then they can create destruction in our wake if we lead by them alone. This world is desperate for moms and dads who don't lead on their own but are eager to listen to the voice of God to include him in the conversation and how they lead in love in their home. 
Our world is desperate for individuals who are seeking after the Lord, who aren't going out about it apart about themselves, but they're, they ache for the presence of God in their life because they recognize, I can't do this. I can't be the kind of colleague that I need to be. I can't be the kind of servant I need to be without you governing my every step. Lord, will you be a part of the conversation? Our world is desperate for men and women of the church who will wait upon the Lord and will seek him in all the relationships that are before them. Our world is desperate for a church that would lay its life down for the sake of the gospel rather than assert its rights. Um, I had the privilege of being in China in 2008. It was two weeks after. It was two weeks after the uh, earthquake in uh, Sichuan Province, where over 100,000 people were killed and people were displaced from their homes. And uh, gosh, we had this privilege and honor of. Um, going to this huge stadium with many of these displaced families were, and the government and local entities were providing them food and water. So you can imagine you had thousands of displaced individuals and families around and inside this stadium with huge pallets of water and food. And so here these uh, uh, white people are here, this group of white people are here, um, and we're just beginning to interact with them. And just, I don't know, one of, one of them had a guitar, and James Teeley had a guitar. He began playing music, and um, we just started trying to hear people's stories. We had a translator. I mean, there's really nothing much we could do other than be present, right? Within a few minutes of being there, we realized that there was another group there. It was a church. Now, underground church. Bear in mind, an underground church in China is stripped of all of its rights. They can't gather together freely. If they gather, they have to gather in a home. And yet this church was there peppered throughout looking for opportunities to love these people in the middle of a crisis so that they could hear the gospel and meet their needs. And we got wind through the translator that they were there. And so we recognized that we were an opportunity, this group of white people. What an incredible opportunity. We could play music and distract those authorities with weapons that were around us, that they might be a little bit enamored by us so that the church would have the freedom to share the gospel with these hurting families and individuals. Isn't that the kind of church we need to be. There is no doubt, regardless of where you think this crisis is manifested from, our nation is in a crisis. And are we going to be the kind of church that is waiting upon the Lord, that is seeking the Lord, that is loving our neighbor enough that we're willing to sacrifice any rights that we have so they can see the gospel in us? Or are we going to beat our chest and assert that this is who we are? The church doesn't need that. The town of Peniel and Succoth didn't need that. 
They needed to hear the story of God. That's the kind of church. And when I say our church, I say the church. That's the kind of church that this broken world needs to see and hear right now. Will we be it? Will you? Will I be that kind of church? Let's pray. Father, there's so many lessons to learn from Gideon that we can't go about this on our own because when we do, it leads us into more broken and destructive places. Lord, help us to be the kind of church that is willing to love in sacrificial ways so that people can see and experience the kind of grace and mercy we have through Jesus. Lord, may that be our testimony. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.